Welcome to the Super Fantastic Nerd Hour. It's Oscar season. That means episode six. We're diving into Oscar snubs. Well, Oscar snubs as it relates to super nerdy sci-fi films and some other genres, I suppose. That's right. You're listening to H.A. Conrad. I'm Olima too. And what are we doing in the con- uh, crossover today, Conrad? Today in the Infinite Crossover Chamber, we are pitting Space Odyssey 2001 against Star Wars. The two greatest Oscar snubs of all time will be battling in today's episode. We're going to follow that up with the top five Oscar snubs, our top five. And um, we can't wait to hear from you about uh, what you think about the Oscar snubs. So um, how did this idea come about today, Conrad, to kind of dive into this? Well, you know, you and I were having a conversation just about Oscar-nominated films and Specifically, I think we were talking about the film Her and the fact that it's pretty incredible that it made it into the best film category because it's a little bit unusual for a film that has a sci-fi premise or that kind of a premise to to end up in best film. Um, Traditionally, the Oscars have not been very kind to... To our sci-fi loving natures, I suppose. No, I I remember that day. um, We started a conversation about that, looked up on Wikipedia, and we're like, well, at least one sci-fi film is probably one best picture, right? And then we looked and we looked and we looked, and we didn't find any winners. Right. So that kind of started a conversation, and as we usually do, we're like, do the podcast! And uh, that's how this idea was born. Yep. And then also, I think... Is Gravity in the mix this year? Gravity's in the mix, yeah. So that's another one. So for, for both of those films to be in there, that's that's unusual. Yeah. So, um, and so I thought it would be a good topic to just chat about this and to chat about perhaps why and even what relevance the Oscars actually yeah. have. Yeah. So let's, let's kind of explore this um, just to give some background knowledge about how this works. So... The Oscars are the awards of the Academy of Motion Pictures and Sciences, uh, the organization founded back in 1927. So this group has 6,000 members. Now, you have to be invited to become a member. So that's the first thing to remember here is it's a very select group of people who get in. And the largest group in the Academy are actors. The way the whole nomination process rolls out is um, you can nominate, anyone can nominate within their category, and then everyone nominates for the best picture. Um, However, what gets nominated and how things get nominated, um, there's a whole wild campaigning process that goes around around us. Have you heard about any of this kind of stuff? Yes, I'm aware of it. And I mean, you know, this has always been my view of the Oscars, is that it's a huge sales campaign. It's an advertising campaign overall. I mean, it's a way, if you look at even how the red carpet is set up and how the coverage is for the Oscars, I mean, to me, it's very clearly an industry-sponsored advertising event. Um, Absolutely. So it it does not surprise me at all that the campaigns to get certain films on the list or not um, have to do with what goes on in the inner workings of the industry. Yeah, yeah. There's um, This past year, um, there was a lot of surprise because Robert Redford's movie, um, All is Lost, was kind of 
snubbed from the Oscars. Mm-hmm. And he um, he quoted at the opening of Sundance, I believe, he said, Hollywood is what it is. It's a business. And so when these films go to be voted on, usually they're heavily dependent on campaigns. In our case, I think we suffered from little to no distribution. And so as a result, our distributors, I don't know why, they didn't want to spend the money. They were afraid. They were just incapable. I don't know. So what uh, that quote stuck out to me because it kind of captures this idea of marketing and advertising mm-hmm. of movies. And we'll put this in the show notes, but there's this great article uh, chronicling um, Harvey Weinstein's campaign history of his studio and all the movies uh, that he's campaigned for and how, whether it's throwing these huge banquets, these special screenings. Um, in one instance, he had a former Academy Award-winning director sign off on this article that was published um, in in some magazine. All this kind of, kind of wild stuff um, that's very political, very uh, much in keeping with advertising, and it's a way of getting exposure for different films. Now, you you got to be... A, a good film, but there's a lot of great stuff out there, a lot of stuff that doesn't get get recognition, and a lot of stuff that doesn't get the sort of campaign and advertising machine behind it, and a lot of times that kind of falls on genre films. True. Um, and, you know, I think that we've seen, even when you go to the, the film, like the movie theaters and see sort of the trailers coming in, you can tell what films have a lot of money behind them and which Mm -hmm. don't just because of how many trailers show up for that film and where they're showing up. And you can see um, the the campaign surrounding the show, like, or the the film's release, like how many, um, how many of those stars end up on late night television, how many of those stars just start popping up places. Like it is a, an absolutely carefully designed ad campaign for each film and those that have more money are obviously able to do a lot more of that and to do product placement so to speak absolutely Um, you know so it's so i get it i i get that films are a product but on the other hand some of the things that i think um people love about films is that they're they're not hmm, some of them are acts of love they are an art they are a piece of art um Mm -hmm. for the for most part, I guess some of them are not. Um, even the ones that are bad, I, I suppose, have some of that involved. There is mm-hmm. an art to making them. But um, I think that that has always been the conflict between filmmaking and the Academy Awards is what is that line between the business and the art, right? And that's probably a line that we see in most art, whether we're talking about photography and the type of art that uh, the type of uh, photography that ends up selling or paintings, um, pop music, um, and the Grammys, or TV and the Emmys. Um, What gets recognition, what gets butt in in seats, Um, there's a huge... One butt in a seat, Ollie? (laughs) Well, you probably want more butts. You want a lot of butts (laughs) in seats. Um, But there there is a whole business to, to art and to what ends up, um, what we end up getting exposed to. Some of that's changing with some new technology. We'll get into that. But, you know, what I was thinking about, you know, my background is is in the healthcare industry, working as a clinical psychologist. And it reminded me a lot of the influence that big pharma has had on on physicians. And uh, back in the olden days, uh, big pharma was able to 
pay for these massive lunches and um, you get all this free food and you could be, a, you know, as a medical student or as a resident or as a fellow, you don't have much time to go eat. And so you come in, you grab all this food and there just happens to be a um, an agent for whatever new drug is being pushed there, giving away this free stuff. And for so long, doctors, uh, physicians um, discounted the influence this have this had on them. And there's study after study that has shown there is a strong influence on this campaigning and the type of medicine that and procedures that doctors recommended. I think it's very similar to the academy. There is this large campaigning process, and while people might dismiss it or discount it, it has a huge influence on what gets nominated by this small insider group and what gets exposed to the public. True. And then, you know, it also affects what kinds of movies are made in future years. And yeah. And the yeah. actors and directors that get recognized by the Academy, whether they get work or whether they get picked up or, or whether they get new projects. And so it does have an enormous amount of influence. And, you know, for, for as somebody who really loves the sci-fi genre and the fantasy genre and the horror genre, genre for that matter, I always find it very disappointing because I do think that part of the interesting thing about filmmaking is the innovation. Mm. And the more, you know, I, I understand that if you want to make money, there has to be that general appeal. But I also think that, that people are a lot more open to things than the Academy realizes sometimes. I, I think you're right. And what, what makes me, what comes to my mind as you're saying this is, the rigidity at which we think about different genres mm -hmm. and how a lot of the films that have been really interesting to me um, kind of bend these distinctions right? Uh, between what a drama is and a Western and science fiction and a romance and a comedy. Um, and there's ways in which you can blend all of these, and those end up being some of the most interesting and innovative movies. But the awards, as they're set up, seem to propagate and promote these um, older ideas of what film should be. Right. And I mean, the, and that's the thing is that I just think that you have some of the most creative people involved in filmmaking and storytelling. So it just seems a bit of a waste to me and a bit boring that it kind of seems to be all the same. Um, and this is not to take away from those films that have been nominated, because I have to say um, there have been some amazing dramas and, and, other types of films that have been nominated for the Academy Awards before. Yeah. But it just, I think it could be a lot more interesting if you opened up the door a little bit and let some of these other things in. Um, and it's going, I think it's going to be interesting in the next few years. I already do think that the Oscars have lost a lot of their uh, weight in some ways. Well, this is why I think they expanded the number of best pictures. Well, right. But I think was... that they have lost people watching. I honestly think the whole, personally, I think that the whole red carpet scene is one of the most boring things in the world. Well, I'll argue with you on that. I mean, there. I think the... We don't have uh, royalty in the United States. We're not. We're not the UK. There is no prince and and princess and queen and all of that. But we have our celebrities, which are in many ways our our royalty. Um, and I think people get caught up in that culture and of celebrities and who they are and what they're wearing and all of this because <laughs> because of the culture. 
I'm not saying I love the red carpet. I'm saying a lot of people do, including, I'm pretty sure, probably a lot of our listeners probably love that that i would like our listeners to weigh in on the red carpet issue (laughs) and see is this going to be an infinite crossover chamber offline ali probably Mm. anyway um i I guess i I guess i'll grant you that i just have never been in into that so you know i i find i honestly don't really care what dress they're wearing i feel somewhat bad for them that they have to run that gauntlet of reporters and it's it's to me it just appears to be super 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 awkward but um okay i'll, I'll grant you that um uh, it, I, you know i think r- regardless of the red carpet what you said earlier they're they're important because of money because of what type of movies get made the visibility of what gets made the validation of the art and i think for me most importantly um is for posterity um what future generations look back and, and watch. Um, the the awards can have a huge influence there on something that's just kind of a small movie, like this Robert Redford movie that probably most people won't see now. It wasn't really recognized, didn't get a big distribution, no real awards. A lot of people probably aren't going to see it. And it might have been the most amazing thing ever. Who knows? Um, and it, made, it makes me think about what we talked about in a previous episode about implicit biases about stereotypes um, and all of that. And I'm wondering, what do you think some of the stereotypes and ideas are about science fiction, about fantasy, about horror that keep them from getting this wider recognition from this supposed um, you know, group of, this elite group of, of motion picture artists? Well, I mean, I think a lot of sci-fi and fantasy and horror, the minute you throw in those elements, people automatically say, oh, that's kid stuff, or oh, that that's like a B, a subgenre of movies. And, you know, if you look at old Hollywood and how those films were made and how those serials were made in terms of television and things like that, because I don't think it's just the Academy that has a problem with this. I think it's television as well. I think it's yeah. the Emmys and, and you know... Star Galactica, Star Trek The Next Generation, X-Files. Yeah, no. None of these really got the recognition they deserved. They didn't. Um, I think J.J. Abrams has made some... Lost. Some strides forward with with Lost and a little bit with Fringe. Um, But I I don't... Alias. Right. But again, we're talking about mainstream television and mainstream movies and... I think that, honestly, you're going to see a sea change, and we have been kind of seeing that because look at some of the really um, insanely popular things in pop culture right now. They're not being driven by an industry. Um, There's a reason why um, file sharing is really upsetting Hollywood, Um, and it's, you know, there's a lot of options to be able to view these things. It's not just in the setting that they would like you to view them in. A lot of people are watching these things at home. People are distributing on their own. They're making their own documentaries. They're making their own films. They're not needing the backing. So I think that distribution has changed a lot, and that's going to ultimately change how these things are viewed, and maybe some of the science fiction films and stories get to be told in a different way well so you're talking about file sharing but you're also bringing up things like youtube well that's what i'm talking about i mean in many ways this stuff has become uh much bigger much bigger and not to get into to just too too far down another rabbit hole but in terms of audiences gaming is much bigger than 
movies of are entertainment. Yeah. at this point. Um, you can, you, you know, the day a major blockbuster game is released, it can make uh, uh, more money than a move in that single first day than most movies can in their whole their whole term in in theaters. Right. So, I mean, in my in my view, I do think the Oscars have to evolve. And I think they've been sort of trying to evolve. I don't think they're evolving enough. Um, and, you know, part of what I think is going on right now, even with this Oscar season. So, Her was nominated, but they honestly didn't know what to do with Scarlett Johansson. Or um, with Joaquin Phoenix. Or with Joaquin Phoenix. Like, or with our director, Spike or Jones. Or Spike Jones. And so, yeah, they nominated the film, but they kind of left out some important nominations in my mind. Um, and I, you know, and I'm not, again, I am not... Um, trying to dismiss the other films in the category that they were, were nominated because there were some good ones. But I just think from my perspective, Her was an amazing film. I think it's one of the best films I've seen this year. You know, you're, you're right. And I think this gets back to, I'm having flashbacks now to grad school and my first, or not even grad school, but undergrad, um, my first research, research methods class about sampling bias. I think what we have here is a group of, um, it's a very selective group that is not representative of the larger population. That, whenever you're doing good science, that is, uh, that's a first thing to look at is who is your sample? What is your sample? And the people in the academy are the select group. You have to get invited to mm-hmm. be in there. And there's a lot of, indi- I remember in, in the research for this, um, one of the pieces of advice was don't really make a movie that only works well on the big screen because a lot of the Academy Award um, members, they watch this stuff on their small TVs. And there are older individuals who haven't upgraded their TVs in a long time. So keep your movie kind of simple so it works on a small screen. So just in terms of that, like thinking about who these people are and do they really represent the interests of the the larger country and the larger population? I, I don't think they do. So huge sampling bias here. And even if we're thinking... You know, the Emmys have caught up a little bit where um, some of the Netflix um, mm-hmm. Netflix produced TV, things like House of Cards, um, yeah. was nominated and won um, uh, some categories. So th- there's a sea change happening in who makes media, what type of media is popular, how it's made, how it's distributed. And these older institutions are having a harder time keeping up, I think, because... Um, they don't necessarily have the membership that that represents people like you and me and others out there. Right. Um, so, you know, that's, uh, you, you know, and I think also science fiction, I think a lot of people, you know, uh, just to sort of go back to why we don't see these films appearing in these categories as well, I think science fiction people the biases that you are mentioning people hear that word and they immediately think cheesy mm, or or mm-hmm. you know just i don't want anything to do with it they you know and then if you i think if you sit those same people in front of a science fiction film like we're about to talk about some of these coming up they're like, oh wait, no, I love that film. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, like yeah. there is a disconnect between the word science fiction. Yeah. And between what people actually think of those kinds of stories. And I think if you talk to a lot of other nerds out there and geeks um, and writers and produ- content creators, there's a lot of debate about what is the best way to describe some of this work. Some people like future fiction. 
Mm -hmm. Um, Some people have a distinction between science fiction and sci-fi and what that means. Mm -hmm. Um, This term, science fiction, brings up a lot of ideas and... um, those ideas don't really fully capture the diversity of the work that exists um, and the type of stuff that we love. Um, so it's, yeah, you're right. This brings up a lot of bias. And, you know, I think as a result of that, we have other awards that have been created. There's a thing, there's things like the Hugo Awards. Um, I know Battlestar Galactica won a Peabody Award. There's a Saturn Awards. Um, and there's bias there too. I was looking at the Hugo Awards, and one year they gave they gave the best picture to Avengers over Looper. Oh. So you know, uh, I don't know what's going on there. But um, the the difference here is th- those awards don't necessarily have the uh, the exposure that Academy right. does, and the the influence and the uh, the impact that the Academy Awards have. True. I just had a sudden thought about the red carpet, mm-hmm. and what I would really like to see is all the actors being dressed in costume for whatever they're being nominated for. Oh my gosh, that would be amazing. That would be cool. And if they weren't being nominated, they just have to show up in costume of something, like a character they played the past year or something like that. You know who would win Or that, maybe right? they vote by dressing as the character that they most like. You know who would win that? Who? Loki. Oh, Loki would totally win that. That's pretty cool. <laughs> I'm blanking on the guy's name. Who's the actor who plays uh, Loki from uh, from Thor? Um, uh, is it? Oh, my God. I can't believe. I hate it when this happens. But he showed up at this past year's San Diego Comic Con. And just uh, Tom Hiddleston. Yes. Um, there we go. Tom Hiddleston showed up in secret to San Diego Comic-Con, and then rocked the crowd as Loki. He did not break character, and he was just the whole time totally soaking it all in. Um, I want to see him show up on the red carpet as Loki and just freaking rock it in that amazing Asgardian outfit. You just want to see him wear those, like, horn things. The horn things, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I want to see, like... You know, someone from E News like interview him about like, oh, who are you wearing today? Or at him like, oh, well, I'm wearing Asgardian, blah blah blah. I think that would be really See, cool. See, this would be so much more fun than what they actually do. Come <laughs> okay. on, I, I give you that. I, I give you that. Although sometimes um, some of the dresses are like amazingly sci-fi influenced. Rarely. Rarely, but sometimes you see that. And Did you happen to see the article this week about, because it was Fashion Week here in New York, yep. and I don't normally pay attention, but... There was a designer that did Star Wars dresses. And and they were awesome. The Death Star dress was pretty sweet. I didn't like any of the other ones. I totally support I thought the the Luke Skywalker dress. Who would want a Luke Skywalker dress? Uh, I think there's people who would want a Luke Skywalker dress, but I I agree that the best... Tell me who. Who would want that? I I will not out them on the podcast, but I can give you a few names afterwards. Um, The Death Star was the most beautiful blend of, of... of dress and of the artistry of uh, of fashion and of science fiction. Right. It was amazing. I love that it showed up there. That's Oh that's... yeah, the fact that it's getting well that's a big deal that it um you know, this is fashion week is really high end um um art of fashion and the fact that we're seeing some science fiction there is Really cool. I have um, to give the name of the designer because I, f- I will feel bad. Well, um, and we'll put it in the show notes, definitely. I believe it was Rodart. 
was the name of the person. Um, yes, Rodart. And we'll we got the uh, we'll put the link out there. Um, you know, Conrad, I I think we got a. We have two of the biggest heavyweights, and we've got a ton of other movies and examples to give. Okay. I think we got to move forward to the infinite crossover chamber. Do it. Welcome to the infinite crossover chamber. I like that. That was a nice one. I like the little click at the end. That was sweet. That's the doors clicking in for security reasons because (laughs) of the power of the crossover chamber. All right, what are we doing today, Conrad? Um, Today in the crossover chamber, we are going to be discussing two of what people would consider to be the biggest sci-fi Oscar snubs. Um, 2001, A Space Odyssey, Stanley Kubrick, versus... Star Wars. Episode... Well, it's just called Star Wars, but for... We're going to go with episode four, I We're going with episode four, A New Hope, which by George Lucas, his uh, his debut sci... um, uh, Star Wars film. Before this, he had he had a couple others, big um, films that got a lot of recognition. But it's kind of his big film. Um, at the time, it was just called Star Wars, right. but now known as uh, Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope. So, um, the question today is: Which film is more deserving of a Best Picture Oscar? Hmm. Well, I have. This is a tough one. I, you know. I just from a purely artistic and filmmaking perspective, I think 2001 wins in my mind, and we can get into why momentarily. But um, from a storytelling perspective, I think Star Wars caused a lot of changes in the industry. So, at its face, are we talking about a purely well? Let's are we talking about the film as a whole? As an artistic we're, piece, we're or are talking, we talking about, or are we talking about sort of a change in how filmmaking was done? You know, I think the way this is probably some of the struggle that um, members of the Academy actually do go through is, uh, you know, what are we recognizing here? Are we recognizing a film kind of um, isolated from everything else, just that as a work of art, or are we? are we also considering the film in the context of the time in which it's coming out? And I think that's, um, you look back at films like um, Up in the Air um, is a good example, where it um, it was so heavily related to the context of the time, the economic collapse as it was happening, and rewatching it doesn't necessarily hold up as well. So mm-hmm. you have to consider it in its history. I think what we got to do here is we got to go through each film. Okay. Think about them, talk about them, and then at the end kind of, like figure out well, who, we'll see. who we we're, award. We'll we'll see if if my first comment keeps up. But um, you know, two thousand one. Um, I know that you and your your lovely lovely partner Nuan watched this. Just last rewatched night. it last night, and I'm so proud of her. I know she doesn't listen to the podcast, but I'm so proud of her. I thought she'd only make it through the ape scene, but she made it through the whole <laughs> film. We had to fast forward through a lot of the beautiful imagery um but uh we made it through so we rewatch i watched we rewatched 2001 i also rewatched uh star wars so 1968's 2001 space odyssey stanley kubrick um i i adore this film um uh, on rewatch i was so um i've seen it i growing up i probably saw it once a year 
because my dad loved this film. We, mm-hmm. He loved HAL 9000 and that whole idea. But I probably watched it once a year, didn't really understand what it meant, what I think it means, until a few years ago. This was my first time watching it in, um, in probably about four years. And the last time I'd watched it, I, I watched it on a big screen, which is amazing. Because this movie is gorgeous. It well, is it's beautiful. I mean, Kubrick, oh. uh, Stanley Kubrick, this is, I mean, it's it's beautiful it's gorgeous the scenes of this film are amazing it's amazing what he was able to accomplish um it, this the was... unfolding of the storytelling visually is oh. just incredible it's it's a marvel to look at and he fills the whole screen like a canvas and there's so many details from the dawn of man to the uh, appearance of the the monolith on the moon to Jupiter and beyond in the infinite, so many details on the screen that your eye can explore. And it's the movie is almost hypnotic in the music, the visuals, the way the camera moves. And no one had seen anything like this before. The level of visual effects hold up so well. You know, I, I watched 2001 and then I watched Star Wars and... You know, Star Wars has had its special edition, gone back, things have been cleaned up, special, the the land speeder, you know, the stuff underneath was cleaned up. You look at 2001 unedited, it still looks perfect. Right, but you also have to consider how they were shot so very differently. So that's something to be said for that. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. You but- know. It's, I don't know. I think it would be very hard to compete with Kubrick on anything on this level. <laughs> it's hard to compete with him on anything visually because he is such a I visual know. storyteller. I mean, he's a photographer and, and that's, you know, if you look at some of his photographs, you can see that eye that he has to, for this. Um, and even watching The Shining, which is another film mm-hmm. that I think got snubbed. Yeah. Um, it's <laughs> beautiful. It's beautiful, and it still stands up as well. Obviously, very different genres here, and very different stories. <laughs> Quite different stories, but I think that um, 2001. It's really you can watch it now, and you can still see why people thought it was awe inspiring. Well, and I'm not sure. I mean, I I have obviously a nostalgic um, love of Star Wars: A New Hope, but I can agree and see like if somebody was just watching star wars episode four now i think especially um younger children um that are used to a much faster paced yep level of storytelling and things like that i think either would pose problems on that well level, by the i way. was gonna say <laughs> um, if you want to talk about pacing but, <laughs> but i just think from an effects point of view and from just you know there there's a lot of flaws within Star Wars that you you kind of overlook cuz you have that nostalgia. Well, he was also George this was George Lucas's uh an early film. Um he part of it was self-funded. It was this kind of no, deal No, that's between... what I mean. Like he had a very different filmmaking environment yeah. to make this. He um, he didn't have the the reputation that Kubrick did right. at the time when he made 2001. Uh, so we got, you know, we're debating these as a film overall, and you got to look at the story. Um, and well, since we're on the topic of two thousand one, well, what do you think of the story of two thousand one? Uh, it's the- sort of weird. I, I mean, I think honestly, I think part of why it holds up a little bit is the ambiguity of the storytelling mm-hmm. that you can read a lot into it. There isn't a ton of dialogue. 
there isn't, you know, most of the story is told with the actions. And yes, yes, you do have some things that are terrifying and, and whatnot. But it, it's if you compare, you know, how many times humans speak or Hal speaks in, in 2001. There's not much. There really yeah. isn't much. I mean, it's pretty light on that. And so I think, oddly enough, I think because it doesn't give all that much context in the unfolding of the storytelling and you're left to draw your own conclusions a lot of, a lot about a lot of stuff and there's some super weird stuff in there <laughs> that I don't know even sometimes how to draw conclusions about. Yeah. Um and I'm curious to hear what New Anne thought. Well, she we were watching it and she's like, "Wait, what what does that black thing mean? The black stone?" And I'm like, "Oh, well, in your question, you're just summarizing deba- decades of debates about what, what the monolith means. And then we finished the film, and she said, so what's up with the child embryo thing? I'm like, well, it is called the star child. <laughs> and you're also summarizing decades of debate. Um, so it it left her with a lot of questions, and I didn't want to give anything away until we finished the film. But I think that's the point, is Kubrick wanted it to be open-ended, and where I am now with this, and I'm curious to to find out what, what you think, but I think the basic gist of the movie, to me, what I take away is the, the monolith appears at these moments where consciousness has been expanded, where intelligence has been expanded, and that's lead to development of new tools, and those tools have led to violence. Mm-hmm. So I think the basic theme here is about our self-destructive nature, whether that's with the bone and using that to kill other apes, whether um, that is with uh, Hal and his sort of self-preservation and destroying the other astronauts, or the star child who in the original script um, gets back to Earth and triggers all the nuclear bombs on the planet. Now, that part was cut out, and it's kind of left off more ambiguous what's going to happen. But I think if you look at the whole tone of the movie, that star child is not going in a very happy direction. No, and I mean, I think that this is definitely a reflection about, um, you know, what man has done in the world and what he has done with his talents. And he or she, I guess, men and women as a as a race have done. And, you know, what did they do? They created Hal, and Hal is a reflection of his creators. Yeah. Right, um, yeah. and it goes back to, um, and I know, and I know, my dear friend Derek disagrees with me on this. Um, in our terms dear of friend Derek, our dear friend Derek, yeah. um, but I think Hal is unfortunately a reflection of the people that created him, um, and of some of the worst traits of humanity. Yep. And and I do think, unfortunately, I think that this film is sort of showing sort of the bad stuff that happens when when we go out into the universe it's not to me it's not a very hopeful no it's film. not and that's that's one of the things that we do know about best pictures um despite regardless of genre us, usually best pictures ha- leave you kind of feeling in some way um the character is redeemed or that uh, something optimistic has happened there's been a huge struggle and the characters overcome it that's not the feeling you get when you walk out of 2001. It's more of puzzle, being puzzled, being confused, or kind of really having this existential crisis about humanity. On my rewatch, I will say that something I didn't realize the last time I saw it is how sad and tragic Hal's death is. Yeah, it's pretty sad, which oh. is why I came down, you know, in terms of the crossover chamber we had regarding Hal. 
I it's really horrible. It's horribly sad to watch and to hear and he pleads and it's just it's very upsetting. Um and you know, the, I don't know and and I find it to be very tragic and and it's a traumatizing piece of yeah. the film. Even though he's done a lot of evil. Yeah. But in some ways he's only acting out what he's been taught well now that you're talking about emotions one of my criticisms of 2001 is the restricted range of emotions that the movie creates one of the things that i love about going to cinema is um is experiencing so many different feelings and the best example of that is uh the first 10 minutes of up you feel (sighs) humor sadness excitement joy despair all of that and in 2001, there was not one moment where I really laughed. Well, I, I take that back. There's moments when I laughed, but that was looking at the false predictions of the technology, right. like the Hilton Hotel in Space or the video phone or the fact that no one ever predicted, no one ever predicted networked computers or email or stuff like that. But the actual story... Well, maybe not in films, but in... Not in films. In, in yeah. writing, I'd say yeah. that that was happening. Um, but I, there was no point where I... <sighs> I I felt a lot of awe. I felt sadness. I felt fear. Um, I I was confused. But at no time <laughs> did I ever smile, really, unless uh-huh. I was fe- experiencing awe. And maybe if I dropped acid during the beyond the infinite, smiling. yeah, let the color wash over me, then I'd feel a lot of emotions. But uh, yeah. Well, and and you know, I I also think that this film in particular gave a nice look into just the visual effects at in space. And that idea was like nothing anybody had ever seen. No, this is pre-moon landing. Yep. Um, so the Apollo missions were underway, but we hadn't landed on the moon yet. Um, and it, But the, the look was inspired by NASA, whereas the previous fil- science fiction films before this, we had some great ones. We had Metropolis. We had a few other things. But if you look at Forbidden Planet... Um, the spaceships were flat, not too detailed, didn't look realistic based on what NASA was about to do. And 2001 kind of said, look, you can do a visual story. You can ground it in scientific realism. You can have the rotating ships to simulate gravity. Um, and it, it it did blow a lot of minds. Well, it, it did. Out. And this is realistic or or I don't want to call it realistic science fiction, but that's kind of what it was. Um as opposed to some of the, you know, cut out paperboard, cut out cardboard spaceships and, you know, well, that kind of that the, kind of visual effects, which is what I think people thought yep. science fiction Those was. Those were all kind of afterthoughts. Right. Yeah. Um, so, Star Wars. So, Star Wars was a totally different thing. Um, there was, you know, this is really a fairy tale. Um, you're talking about storytelling set in space. And that's the thing. I mean, I think that that's why it had such um, broad appeal to people. I think that it was a hero's tale. You could pretty much take any hero's tale in all of our history and slap it on this, and that's what you get. And it's universal appeal, and it's a it's excitement, adventure. There's good versus evil. Very black and white. See, I see. I might see more similarities here um, with 2001 and Star Wars, just from a visual aesthetic. Um, 
was uh, in preparation for this. I was watching some interviews and happened to find an interview with George Lucas talking about 2001. And he saw it when he was a film student. Mm -hmm. So he said absolutely had an impact on him and made him believe that you could do a visual story. And if you look at, just look at the aesthetics of Star Wars, of course, the effects are influenced. The the level of detail on these spaceships and all of that. And uh, probably uh, George Lucas's whole technical creative team was influenced by 2001. So yes, of course. But the visual aesthetic of it, the contrast, stormtroopers, the um, Darth Vader, the way the Death Star looks, kind of was capturing some of the feelings of the 1970s, thoughts about confinement, that kind of stuff. It was really tapping into a lot of that and using basic colors and basic symbols. Um, um, yeah, black and white. Yeah, well, yes. <laughs> yeah. But doing it in a very visual way that, yes, it was a hero's journey. Yes, it was a kind of, it was a fairy tale um, I saw J.J. Abrams speak a couple months back at, at the release of his book, and he said, um, in a question, in response to a question about Star Trek versus Star Wars, he said they're different animals. Star Trek is science fiction, and Star Wars is a fairy tale. And I, I'm not of the camp that believes that Star Wars is not science fiction, but I do believe you're right. It's mostly these themes that are universal, and it's a story that taps into that's easy to understand. Um, because we've all heard the story before. We love these stories. 2001, very hard to understand the story, the narrative, and what the film's about. Right. And, I mean, also with Star Wars, I, I'm going to, in addition to the visual effects, the space battles, and things like that, you also have a lot of characters that were alien characters. Yeah. Like Chewbacca yeah. and... Um, and Yoda and all these not in Star Wars Star okay. later on I'm hopping I'm hopping <laughs> um, but just even in in viewing um, on Tatooine and yeah. and you there were these things and they were just they were part of yeah. the movie they were characters they were real characters um, people viewed them as real characters not just sort of little green men yeah. they were different species and things like that so I, I mean, I think that it did a very good job at presenting uh, this universe. A, uh, this universe, and, it, and there was a mass appeal to this universe. And I know that just from a visual effects standpoint, people were people feel like it was snubbed um, by the Academy, um, and it and it was massively successful at the time. Massively successful, and that's one of the things that does separate two thousand one. I think 2001 really did strike a chord with a lot of um, um, more of the the film community. They, right. I think they really appreciated it. With Star Wars, there was a mass, mass appeal. Um, it did capture um, a lot of people's um, uh, attention, and it was a, a huge commercial success. Um, you know, the... The thing what you're saying about the universe he's created, uh, friends of the show, uh, Brian Young from the Full of Sith podcast and, and Andrea Ledimenti from the Arkham Sessions podcast, uh, when we were on this panel at San Diego Comic-Con, they were talking about um, how the, the representation of diversity, that there is this mm -hmm. universe in which people look completely different from one another, are working together, are partnering together, are piloting ships together. And a lot of um, a lot of these ideas about differences um, don't really matter there. 
And yeah, you've got the Android stuff. You know, we don't serve their kind here. But there's diversity with that, where Luke does embrace um, R2, D2, and C3PO. So there's, you know, and I think another nice thing about Star Wars is anyone um, anyone who does have um, people, people from different backgrounds could latch on to this idea of faith and True. the Force and mm-hmm. what that means. And people who come from a Buddhist background said, oh, well, that's very much in keeping with Buddhism. People from Christianity said that's in keeping with Christianity. Judaism, Judaism, Islam, Islam, etc. Go on, on uh, onwards. And um, there's so much that Star Wars was able to um, absorb from past, um, from past sort of uh, uh, mythologies and combine it in a very modern way to create a new mythology which has persisted for so long, decades and decades. And here we are um, a little over a year and a half away from the release of a new Star Wars and a continuation of this world that started with 2000, with not with 2001, but with the Star Wars film. True. So where are we at, though, in this competition? Where Where do you sit on this? You know, I'm... I am still going to vote the way I came into this debate. Everything we've talked about has just reinforced my um, my gut feeling about this. Um, has well, okay, I'll reveal myself since you re- revealed your choice first. Um, I think at the end of the day, the best way I've described the best way I've heard two thousand one described is it's it's like a cinematic opera. It is not you know you don't go to the opera every day. You can't consume. Um, you can't. You have to work yourself up to being able to appreciate opera, and I don't think that two thousand one has the mass appeal that would capture a best picture. I think it's the superior film in terms of influence and um, in terms of cinematic achievement, and it, I think it made Star Wars possible because of its influence on George Lucas. But I don't think it's the best picture. I think Star Wars wins for me. Star Wars is more of a pop hit it's like a top 40 hit right Mm. something like that but i think it is something that a wider group of people can appreciate can um it'll bring a wider group of people into cinema and it made me feel more things than 2001 did it made me feel humor it made me feel despair with the destruction of alderaan it made me feel hope it it uh, it gave me more of what i want from when i go to cinema so i vote star wars See, my personal favorite is Star Wars, and it makes me also feel more things than than 2001, but I also have to view this from a an Oscar position and from an Academy position, that if you were to put these two films in front of the Academy, I don't, I still think 2001 would, would beat Star Wars as an overall visual and filmmaking, um, um, achievement um and yes star wars has mass appeal i think the story agreed i think that the storytelling is better but ultimately i think the filmmaking is much better with space odyssey and it was also groundbreaking um so i you know i still come out there i'm willing to be i'd love to hear from the audience to hear what they think but you know, from an Academy point of view, they don't always pick the films that I would like to see <laughs> win. And so I have to feel like that that may be 
where they come out. Although, you know, they did snub Kubrick quite a bit. So, All right. Well, here we are. It is, um, it's up to you. Um, listeners, let us know um, what you think. We've got another super fantastic impasse over here. Um, and we want to know what you think. 2001 A Space Odyssey versus Star Wars. Um, what is the better picture? Time to exit the infinite crossover chamber. That was understated. That's good. So, what um, do we got today in our top five? So, top five, and hmm, I'm I'm curious to hear what you have in here. I don't know if we have a mind meld or not, but we'll see. Hmm. But it's going to be top five science fiction. Is it films or actors or a little bit of both for you? Um, it is a little bit of everything, and I have one pick that is not science fiction. Okay. Um, and it's science fiction films that we feel were Oscar-worthy that got overlooked. Is that fair to say? With the exception of one thing that I'm going to (laughs) pick. You are always, Conrad, you are always the one who does some peculiar votes from time to time so i i have the i have the leeway to do this um today all right that's fair (laughs) that's fair um so since i i think i started out last time so i'm gonna let you start out this time uh my number five is going to be andy circus um as best supporting actor and take your pick um you can do 2002's gollum uh, I mean, 2002's Lord of the Rings and his portrayal of Gollum, or you could also do Rise of the Planet of the Apes. Mm. Now, let me explain myself here. Um, my top five all um, hone in on different areas of bias within the Academy Awards. Okay. That's how I try to structure things. And the bias here is Andy Serkis, his portrayal of these characters is based on the new motion capture technology which has been seen in Lord of the Rings. It's been seen in Avatar. Uh, the evolution of it is seen in Avatar, um, in Rise of the Planet of the Apes, and in this year's Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. We're going to see this again. And there's been a lot of debate whether um, these performances can qualify as an acting nomination. Because at what point does the acting end and the computer begins in what you mm. see on screen? This is a debate that was started in the 2000s. We're going to see this even more so as the technology matures. I'm sure with Avatar 2, whenever that comes out, we're going to see another big quantum leap forward in what's capable of this. Yeah, and... but but the script would have to be much better, as would the acting. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Everyone... For Avatar, I, you know. Except for Zoe Saldana, who was flawless in that uh-huh. movie. Uh-huh. <laughs> Um, but I, I do think this is going to be an interesting debate. And anyone who has seen the footage of Andy Serkis acting and, and a side-by-side of the finished product, it's very clear that what we see with Gollum and what we see with Caesar is so influenced by what Andy Serkis is doing with his face, with his body, and with his, um, with his uh, vocal acting. So that's my number five. Okay. My number five is actually um, Alien. Mm. With and I feel like this Sigourney is a Weaver, film. Sigourney Weaver, Ridley Scott, um, both, and also I would, you know, I would basically go in a little bit further into the cast, um, mm. but uh, overall, and that's why I'm saying as a film overall, I feel like it was overlooked. I think that the, just the visuals were incredible. It was yeah. definitely overlooked. Um, I know, I know, 
my partner Bill would not agree because he's not a fan of the Alien Aliens franchise. But I just think that it was a film that changed sort of the space, like uh, horror, like suspense genre. And I honestly think Sigourney Weaver was pretty amazing. Yeah, not to was. mention yeah. hot. So, um, <laughs> really, an amazing character. That, but an, um, but an amazing story, and then yeah. the aliens themselves. It's terrifying. The alien itself, actually, uh, and then remember Ash, the yeah. the robot was in yeah. it. Um, just so many cool things about it, and I just felt like it should have gotten something um, from the cinematography to the set design to uh, Jerry Goldsmith's beautiful score to that film. Um, to Sigourney Weaver and Ridley Scott's wonderful acting. I uh, I mean, direction. I, I completely agree with you. Um, honorable mention for me, uh, but I, I love that film. Okay. It's my favorite of the whole Alien franchise. Cool. Uh, let's go with number four. Uh, mine's real quick, so I'll go first. Um, we don't have to say too much about this, but my number four pick is Her. Now, I realize it is on um, on the slate for Best Pictures. However, how can you recognize this as a Best Picture nomination without giving credit to Joaquin Phoenix and his performance? Um, so much of the film is a huge close-up of his face, and that there's so many ways in which that could, could have gone wrong. But Joaquin Phoenix really carried that film, um, and, you know, along with... Uh, his support from uh, Scarlett Johansson and his her portrayal. Um, and Spike Jones as a and director. Spike Jones as a director. I had that in my honorable mentions because of those, um, be, because they were not included in those categories. Yeah. But because it made Best Picture, I didn't. I didn't put it in our top five. Yeah, no, fair enough. And we'll put this in the show notes. But but there's a great article on tour about how. Um, if this wins Best Picture, how this could really change how people view science fiction. Because I think a lot of people might see her and not recognize this as science fiction. It breaks some of those stereotypes. And um, as they say, it doesn't use science fiction like a quote-unquote blunt instrument, um, but it makes its uh, it makes its point known by raising up questions of what if. True. Um, my number four, and I tried to do some different things as well, but my number four was actually Sin City. Oh, cool. Um, I think visually we hadn't seen anything like that. I think that the storytelling, I honestly, when they announced that they were coming out with Sin City as a film, I was expecting some sort of horrible (laughs) cartoony, I don't even know what I was expecting. I certainly wasn't expecting what I saw. I thought it was beautiful. Um, I thought that the storylines kind of came in. They were done well and they were overdone in the way that that those particular graphic novels are overdone. Um, You know, I don't necessarily like Frank Miller as a personal (laughs) on a personal (laughs) note. I think I disagree with him on some things. But um, overall, I thought that the film was I walked out of that being really impressed and amazed at how they had done it yeah. um, from a technical aspect. But I also think that it was a very hard film to direct and to tell those stories and to tell them um, so well and have them so cl- The editing of the film as well as the acting was, you know, sometimes it was over the top, but I think that it served the purpose of that film. So, yeah. so that's my number good, four. Good pick. You know, I haven't seen it since I saw it in the theater when it came out, so I would need to revisit it. Um, but what I do remember so much from that film is how much it worked visually. 
Um, so I absolutely agree on on that level. Um, and it's not, you know, it's 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 pushing the envelope on the science fiction thing um, because it's, you know, but but there there are certainly elements. I guess it's a little bit more film noir. Yeah, but but I like that. And um, w- one of the things that sticks out in my mind is I saw it with a few friends, and one was not a friend of or not an, uh, a fan of um, science fiction, uh, comic book genre stuff and he really enjoyed it um so i think it is like a film like her that um if you see it you can appreciate its artistry right so there that's where i came out on good that. pick all right um we're on to number threes uh no mind meld at present for those of you keeping score <laughs> uh number three on my side is et the extraterrestrial hmm. um steven spielberg's 1982 film um, of Steven Spielberg's early science fiction, this is my favorite, um, primarily because of the role it plays in my childhood. It does sort of capture some of those basic ideas of best picture winners, which is, you know, hope, um, overcoming obstacles, ending on a positive note. This is something Steven Spielberg does well, and I think it really works in this story. Um, when it lost to Gandhi um, in terms of best picture. Well, and, what are you going to do? Well, this is what Richard <laughs> Attenborough, the director, said after um, he won. He said, I was certain that not only would E.T. win, but that, but that it should win. It was inventive, powerful, and wonderful. I make more mundane movies. So even the winner of the best picture said E.T. should have won. And it probably would have if we didn't have this bias in the Academy. Well, we did have a mind meld at number three. Yes. Yes, Yes, we did. Oh, my gosh. We got a super fantastic mind meld. It's been so many weeks, but now we got one. That was a good song, Ali. Thank you. That's uh, that's, uh, (laughs) Ali Matu original. Sweet. We should record that and put it out as an MP3. Why not? Um, But, yeah, I I felt like... And I and I rewatched this actually recently because it's one of those things you know when you watch a film as a child and you're not quite sure if those emotions and the things that you felt were because of the fact that you were a kid or not and yeah um, it's still I mean obviously some of the the makeup and everything um, the makeup some things don't hold up quite as well but the storytelling yeah. still still holds up and you can see a lot of J J Abrams uh, oh, yeah. you can see how this influenced him. Um, I also, it brought to mind when I was thinking about this list, um, Close Encounters of the Third Kind as well. I don't feel like that was as strong as a film as E.T. and it certainly didn't bring out the emotions that E.T. did. No, I resaw that recently and that dad is a horrible dad. He's a horrible dad. He just sort of leaves the whole family. And, uh, yeah, there's some interesting stuff in Close Encounters. But I but don't think that it holds up no. to the E.T. level, which I think still yeah. does, you know, the story, I think, does hold up. And, um, Although and with at the, Close Encounters, you see a lot of that in uh, uh, Super 8. You do see of, that. Yeah. Um, but in, in any case, I feel like it was really, it got the 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 short end of the stick there oh, um, a, in that particular thing. And a beautiful score by John Williams. Oh, yeah, it was beautiful. Uh, and, you know, the relationships with the kids and yeah. the trust that they have with each other and, you know, um, that that whole storytelling was amazing and how horrible you feel about, how, once again, humans, not always the nicest, yeah. but uh, they're just capable of such low moments and then such amazing moments of grace and... Yep. and so I feel like that was an amazing feat of storytelling. And then 
you know, obviously, I actually one of one of my fondest memories of my mom and what an amazing mother she is is that when that year we saw ET, for some reason she decided to make an ET snow sculpture like Aww. in our snow, and she like managed to dye it with food coloring, and it really did look like ET. It's a little creepy in retrospect, yeah, but it was pretty awesome <laughs> at the time as a kid. <laughs> well, I think our our parents would have gotten along because I remember. Uh, one of my fondest toys as a kid is like this E.T. kind of puppet. It was like this rubber puppet oh thing. Oh my gosh, those things are terrifying. They are really terrifying. <laughs> but as a kid, I kind of loved it. Um, so it's uh, it's great to hear that it's held up for you. Um, I haven't seen it since high school. It is. I mean, I will say I've also been changed by how storytelling in films happens now and how, how it is so faster. much faster paced. Yeah. So it was... I mean, a little bit draggy in terms of the story, but it was still fun. I mean, there were, yeah. but there were some moments where you're just like, move it along. So it's, you know, there's um, um, some of my pleasure reading is um, going through. You make that academic- sound so naughty. <laughs> I know, no, it's not like that pleasure. I was going to say scientific articles um, about psychology and film and some of this other stuff. And so a couple of psychologists looked at um, um, looked at the history of films and. The narrative and the cuts and editing has become faster and faster, and there's been some fMRI studies on what what happens with uh, these different style of narratives. And then the more that the narrative is constructed and edited, the more of a consistent experience audiences have, the mm-hmm. more consistent emotions that experience we we experience. So it makes sense. The more film is constructed and the faster it moves, the more it grips us. And this has happened more and more and more throughout history. So. It makes sense that going back to some of the stuff, it feels slow, but I'm glad it held up for you. Cool. Um, so on to number two. Okay, you go since I went first for number three. I am going to go with Inception. Oh. Now, Tell me more, Conrad. I think that Christopher Nolan often gets overlooked. And you know what? One of the things that happens in the Academy is that sometimes people get overlooked or snubbed maybe because... They're not as well liked in, personal reasons yeah. in in the community, and uh, he can be a bit prickly, and you know. I did not know this about Christopher Nolan. Uh, not always, but I mean, and I don't know that that's why this has happened, but I just feel like also um, Batman Begins, um, Dark Knight, Dark Knight, um, not I'll, Dark Knight Rises, but Dark Knight, Dark Knight definitely. Um, and he, I feel like, has done so much with filmmaking, so many innovative things. I think that the storyline for Inception and the idea behind Inception was incredible. I think some of the, I think overall it was a really amazing film. Um, visually, I think it did fall short sometimes for me a little bit in how the story went and some of the acting. But overall, I feel like it was a very strong film that should have gotten a lot further than it did. So I love Inception. Um, what one of the things that I, a couple of the things that I love about Christopher Nolan, um, starting with Memento and moving forward throughout his career, is he has really um, captured a lot of original ideas. And besides Batman, um, his movies have been very original and based on kind of original source material. And that's what was so cool about Inception in a year where there were so many sequels. Um, he created a film that was uh, very inventive. And you walked out of the theater having to chew on some of the ideas and some of the ways in which the plot unfolded. Um, 
So I, I really love that. It's a great pick. Um, I also like, you know, speaking of Star Wars in 2001, um, it's a very visual film. Mm -hmm. And um, he's a director who doesn't like to do a lot of computer-generated imagery. No, a lot. it's uh, film. He likes it's, film. He loves film. And you see that in that beautiful sequence in The Dark Knight when uh, that big rig truck is flipped over. And uh, there's a lot of sequences in Inception where he did that using wires and creating these spinning sets where um, the actors had to walk at a certain pace. Otherwise, they might fall down because the set is spinning. And well, and it also, you know, and I think he did it. He successfully used these things to create this storyline, which is a confusing and crazy storyline. And it really made you think very, very hard about yeah. what was being presented in the film, which is what I liked about it. Yeah, me too. Um, so that's where, where I was on that. How about you? It was a honorable mention for me. I'm glad you picked it. Um, my number two is a film that I really love too. It's also from another very visual storyteller. It's Alfonso Cuaron's Children of Men. Oh, um, okay. That's, I, you know what? I missed it. <laughs> oh, so we both kind of, we both kind of covered each other's backs with, uh, the, our number two picks. Um, now it was, it was up for best cinematography and, uh, screenplay, but, um, it did not, uh, it was not nominated for best director. Um, and, or it was, it wasn't nominated for best director, um, or best film, I don't think. And, um, I really believe that for both of those uh, awards, it not, it deserved it. Uh, Children of Men. You know, whereas some of my, some of my other picks capitalize on um, different biases, the different the thing with Children of Men is it captures um, the failure of the Academy to recognize um, science fiction that is really commenting on things that are happening now. Mm -hmm. And while the Academy will award um, films that are looking at history and historical pieces and historical narrative or um, uh, biographical narratives and things that have happened in the past, the the fact that they completely failed to recognize Children of Men, which is a film about some of the things that are happening in the Iraq War, some of the things that are happening in the War on Terror, some of the things that are happening with the economic collapse, um, to me, that's it, it's, it's a huge bummer. Um, and then if you look at the film's cinematography, um, what Alfonso Caron does with the camera and his creative team in this film is just breathtaking. Those extended shots the the one that really sticks out is um in that battle where our main leads are, are um kind of navigating through it i won't give it away but um just stunning this is like a 12 13 minute um, continuous take and that hasn't been topped since he made gravity and that extended kind of 15 minute intro in that film that one extended uh piece um really just breathtakingly beautiful visual film I love the score. The score to this film is reminiscent of 2001 A Space Odyssey's mm -hmm. use of classical music. And there's some original music here in, in Children of Men. But just um, um, to me, it, it combined a little bit of Blade Runner. It combined a little bit of 2001 A Space Odyssey and a little bit of um, other stuff to make a film that just um, to me was um, uh, beautiful, timely, current. Love it. All right, now on to our number one. Number one. Um, my number one was in a similar vein. Um, it was District Nine. Mm. Um, and you know this was this came out in two thousand nine. Um, it was a film directed by uh, Neil Blomkamp, and 
It was also produced by Peter Jackson. Mm-hmm. Um, and really, I mean, it won Saturn Awards and it won, um, you know, a lot of other, it was nominated for, for Best, Best Picture, Picture yeah. um, in 2010. But um, it really didn't make it. And the things that I really liked about it is that no matter what, the the storyline really addressed some serious social issues. Absolutely. Um, Xenophobia, um, segregation. um, It really. Apartheid. Apartheid. But it also had this incredibly emotional transformation um, of the main character and. Vicus or Wickus. Vicus. Vicus. Something um, like that. If you say it fast, people might not know. Yes, they might not know. But he was basically this um, this manager in the Department of Alien Affairs, and he um, ends up basically getting infected and, and kind of transforming into mm-hmm. a prawn slash alien mm-hmm. and dealing with the things that they've had to deal with and his relationship with his wife. And it's heartbreaking to watch the transformation and to see what he deals with. It's heartbreaking to see the transformation. And before you even see that, he kind of walks through District 9 in that camp with all the aliens. And it is so incredibly um, intense to see how they treat the aliens. Yes, it's very intense. Here we have the abortion. We're doing the abortion. Can you hear that popping? You hear that popping sound? Yeah. That to me was... uh, uh, the weight of those scenes was immense. And and you uh, really care. You really yeah. care oh, with how these are and, and that to me um and that to me made it such an incredibly the film was well done. Overall well done. And I just feel feel like it just didn't get the recognition that it deserved. Um I actually and you know in terms of us talking about hopeful things, I can understand that, yeah. I suppose, because it wasn't um no. It, it didn't leave you feeling great. It actually, and in, in in some ways, because of how it was filmed, the shaky yeah. cam issues um, and yeah. things, and how it was so fast moving, I actually got a little motion sick watching it. Yeah. Um. But I actually felt like that added to the sort of feeling of it was so upset and intense. Um. But a very serious and amazing film. Um, yeah. And. I love that it is um, based in South Africa, and it kind of blows away this idea that if aliens arrive, that number one, they're going to go to New York or Los Angeles, and also number two, that if if they arrive, everything's going to change in one way or another. They're just kind of stuck there. Right. <laughs> and um, I do like those ideas. Um, it was not in my list because I think it did get nominated for uh, Best Picture, and I thought it, um, th- that it did get some recognition there. Uh, but I, I love that movie, and I, it gets back to something you were talking about earlier, Conrad, which is this blending of genres. Um, there was some science fiction there, too, and it also brought in this kind of docudrama type mm-hmm. of idea, which is how I actually wished World War Z was as a film, that it well, integrated more it, of this. I wish it mirrored more of the book than yeah. it did, <laughs> yeah, yeah, what yeah. they did. But, but it, it was a good example of how you can bring these different ways of telling a story together and unfortunately, um, the Academy does not recognize that type of innovation. So no. um, that is what it is. My number one is my uh, wibbly wobbly pick. It is my pick that's not a science fiction film, but I think it so epitomizes and brings awareness to biases in the Academy. My number one pick is 1941's Citizen Kane. 
No, oh, Ollie. <laughs> really? What is wrong with Susan That's Cain? That's just a general Oscar snub. That's not like a sci-fi it's a, o- no, Oscar snub. No, it's not. Snub. It's not a sci-fi Oscar snub. But it is one of my favorite films. <laughs> um, <laughs> I have a lot of favorite films that didn't make it in there. And um, it really, it, it there's. The reason why this film didn't win Best Picture, it was nominated for nine different awards. It was nominated for Best Writing, for Best Picture, Best Direction, all of that. The reason why it didn't win any of those awards um, is because of threats made by William Randolph Hearst, who really thought that this was film was a was a huge skewering of him, which it kind of was. Well, um, was. <laughs> but it brings it brings all these things. It brings saliency to all these things that we're talking about how um, there's personal political bias. And the fact that this film that has gone down in history as being one of the greatest films, um, the fact that it didn't award win any of these awards purely because of personal reasons, I think that makes it uh, deserving of a number one when you talk about Oscar snubs. I don't know. I don't know, Ollie. I don't know. But... <laughs> But but you want me to say another film? I'll say Empire Strikes Back if you well, want. Well, that's but. that's you know <laughs> that's a given. But all right, all right, I'm gonna I'm gonna move on to honorable mentions. If you can have the Doctor and every companion as a but at geek least power that was couple. still within the geek power couple. Citizen Kane. Hmm. Okay. Um. <laughs> by the way, it is one of my favorite films as well, and it's incredible. But. I don't know. We'll 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 uh. let's warp speed into our honorable right. mentions. What do you got? Um, I have a few. I have some actors in here. Um, I really think Sam Rockwell and Moon deserved something. Yep, I agree. Um, Severus Snape from the Harry Potter movies, Good played pick. by Alan Rickman. Um, Alan Rickman totally overlooked generally, but I thought he was amazing as Snape. He's exactly the Snape I pictured. Yeah. I think he did an incredible job. Um. Honestly, Ed Harris in The Abyss, I thought was incredible. I think The Abyss probably should have gotten a little bit more than it did in terms of recognition. But then again, James Cameron made Titanic and won a lot for that. <laughs> so he's like, I want to make a popular water film. Um, and, and <laughs> well, so, he, and he made a Titanic just so he could go down and play with mechs right, underwater right, right. and explore Titanic. Um, there, you know, I, part of why The Abyss didn't make it onto my top five is that, you know, there's some problems I have with some of the t- storytelling. The pacing in that And movie. the pacing Goodness was weird, gracious. but I, I, it's an interesting film, and I thought Ed Harris was fantastic in it. It's also a pretty bold film in It is what bold it in the time say. it was. Yeah. Um, I got, you know, obviously I didn't throw it into my top five because I've mentioned it before, but Blade Runner... Um, yep, got gonna, that. And also, I'm going to throw Dark City in there, um, The yep. Fly, and I definitely think Jeff, Jeff Goldblum should have gotten. Oh, he's fantastic in The Fly. He's amazing. Um, and then, kind of a little bit of a throw in there, throw in here, just because. I mean, it's it is a bit. It, it did have some problematic in the way it was edited, but even the director's cut, I think, had some problems with the storytelling. But I thought Donnie Darko was oh, really uh, an interesting, fantastic film that got overlooked. It's one of those films that is uh, confusing. Right. Um, and but, I can understand why it didn't make it into the Academy, but I'm just throwing it in there because I but, think it's an incredible you know, I mean, that, film that, that you makes you think a lot. This so. is the thing. Like, why are, why is, are smart films that make you think get discriminated against in these awards? It's, it's really unfortunate um, 
Uh, oh gosh, I, yeah. So these are all great picks, Conrad. You hit some of mine too. Um, obviously, I've got Empire Strikes Back was an honorable mention for me. Um, Metropolis is an honorable mention that it was eligible in the first ever Academy Awards. But Wings, whatever that film is, <laughs> won instead. Um, Iron Giant had absolutely no nominations. Oh, you know what? I thought of that and I forgot to add it in, but you're correct. That definitely <laughs> belongs in there. Yeah. Yeah. And we've talked about that on, um, on the artificial intelligence podcast, uh, the dark Knight, which you already mentioned, Harry Potter, you already mentioned, but it's worth noting. It's the most successful series of all time and it has zero Academy Awards. A big one for me. I'd argue with you on, I think the Harry Potter films are good. I don't think... Um, some of the earlier ones I don't think Sever- are don't hold up as well as some of the well. The later. Severus Snape, I'll give you that. The other thing is Sirius Black, uh, Prisoner of Azkaban. I think that that movie warrants something, even if it's best cinematography. I think Deathly Hollows was was pretty heavy. Deathly Hollows, especially Part Two, I think um, is deserving. Uh, a big one for me is 1993's Jurassic Park. Um, it only had technical nominations, and that's a film that. On every rewatching, it captures my imagination fully. Um, Looper, I think, deserves some recognition, especially Joseph Gordon-Levitt's performance in that film. A Clockwork Orange is a film. Uh, yes. Um, especially, it's a, it's a, man, that film is a tough one to watch. It's hard to watch even now. Yeah, yeah. Eee. However, it taps into some of these ideas about control, conditioning, rehabilitation, um, uh, cr- uh, crime, all of that. Um, also, another Stanley Kubrick. Yep, <laughs> he he really got dissed all over the place, didn't he? It's man who d- did not get enough credit. No, um, and I'll also say that Malcolm McDowell still is like up an actor that freaks me out a little bit. Absolutely, <laughs> and completely underutilized in Star Trek Generations. Yes, so he, he could have be been utilized. an amazing villain. He should be utilized in everything more. But Yeah, um, I got Pan's Labyrinth, um, ah, especially with one. the screenplay. It lost to Little Miss Sunshine, but it should have won. Um, Back to the Future, um, I think, should have gotten more recognition. And um, I... This is not science fiction, but I'm going to leave us with one last pick. Wizard of Oz lost to Gone with the Wind, and I don't know what's the better picture, but dang, that was a good year for film. Mm-hmm. So that's what I got. All right. Well, I'd love to hear what other people um, thought and what, you know, it's always interesting to hear other films, and I also like to see films that I may have missed. So. Yeah. So Any suggestions, that would be fantastic. You can email us at... Mm, I think we're at info at superfantasticnerdhour.com, I believe is our email. Um, you can go to the website. Was, was that info at superfantasticnerdhour.com? Really? Yeah, I think, I think that's our email, but we could check out that. If you go to superfantasticnerdhour.com, you'll be able to comment on this post, see our show notes, or send us a direct email that way. You can also reach the show on Twitter, at nerdhour. And Conrad, where can people reach you? On Twitter, my handle is dieprince, and... You can reach me on the Super Fantastic Nerd Hour, you know, website. Stuff. <laughs> Stuff. Um, also on uh, my zombie podcast, which is reanimated, and that's reanimatedpodcast.com. And on Twitter, we're reanimatedpcast.com. And that's the show I do with my intrepid co-host, Stuart Tiffin. 
And you can find me on Twitter at Alima2. You can also find me um, on BrainKnowsBetter.com. I am the science fiction psychologist exploring science fiction psychology things. And so uh, with that, we're going to leave you. Enjoy the Academy Awards. Enjoy the red carpet. Uh, or not. <laughs> or imagine the or, red carpet as I would. Yeah, that would be pretty cool. I want to see someone do a Tumblr with, with that, with some cool Photoshopping. You know, it would be really awesome if Joaquin Phoenix showed up with the can- with the big... <laughs> with the pants! With the pants and then the big safety pin, the kilt pin holding up the camera. Oh, my God. And, you know, he he's totally capable of doing that, given his weird Yeah, he's cool. I, I, I heart Joaquin. He's uh, awesome. He's a cool guy. Until then, um, until next time... Live long and prosper. Indeed.